All right, we are live. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Chronic Conversations. Before I introduce our very special guest today, let me give a shout out to my sponsors. Uh, thank you at Jesse's Resale. Um, thank you at Thompson's Personal Training. A special thank you to Knott's Badge Creation. Thank you guys for always sharing my stuff. And if you have any paracord needs, whether it be keychains or motorcycle getbacks, or they've even made animal harnesses, or if you have children that don't stay in line, maybe you can get them to make one of those harnesses as well. But contact them for all your paracord needs. We appreciate you, and we're going to get into our podcast. And coming to us live from London, England today, um, she is a teacher, a painter, an author, amateur language. She reads in 20 languages, a room magician, and forest witch. She is Amelda Omfis. Omfis. I, I said it better earlier. I apologize. No, you said it perfectly. Thank, thank you. you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, I, I, I found your Instagram, and that's what led me to giving you the invite for the show. I really wanted to have a conversation with you for so many different reasons. So I'll break it up into kind of sections, and it'll also help us get to know you uh, and more about each of those things that you represent as well. Um, language. I'm fascinated by language. Um, from slang to different languages to sign language to how we communicate in general uh, really fascinates me. Um, for example, in Spanish, I was, uh, I, I know a little bit, but just enough to probably sound horrible. And I had said, Te amo, talking about a food product. And it means look, <laughs> I love something. I, yeah, you're laughing because you know, but for the people out there, so that's a romantic love. Well, yeah. I, was, you know, I was actually in love with this food product. So it fascinates <laughs> me depending on, you know, where you come from and what language you use, how how so many things go into different meanings. Um, what is one of the things you find most fascinating with? Because like I said, I barely, I know a little bit of Chinese, a little bit of Spanish, a little bit of sign language. But other than that, um, I barely speak my own language very well. So, so what's it what's it like for you um, being able to read in all those languages and, and communicate in some and the different thought processes that go along with, you know, trying to translate from your thought process and your language to those? Yeah, I think, you know, in the example you gave, what goes wrong there is you weren't speaking Spanish, but translated English. And I think it would have been better to say me gusta, you know, like I like. Yeah whatever so i think and that's one of the things i think to speak a language well it is to really like inhabit a language and be inside it because as long as you speak like translate it from another language interesting things are going to occur so right. i think for me i've always loved languages i grew up in the netherlands where by age 18 you know, i spoke six languages because you learn them in school in grammar school and then i just like kept on learning more because i enjoyed yeah. it and uh, I think the privilege of languages is it helps me step outside my own perspective. So right. if I get stuck on something, you know, like whatever it may be, I often think, how would this run in another language? Or if I'm running a search and I find very little, uh, again, you know, run the search in another language and sometimes you get additional information. So I think what it stops me from doing is becoming completely welded to just one perspective on life. And I appreciate that very much. And I know it makes me a better parent and teacher if we can shift perspectives like that. Yeah, because that, that can be dangerous if you're, if you're, in my opinion, if your narrow, you know, perspective is really too narrow and it does broaden your world up. It's one of those things, communication, but there's so many other ways to communicate through food, uh, through other uh, other other means that we can express culture um, creatively. 
uh, uh, one of the things I was drawn to is your paintings and, and your paintings. I saw um, the spirituality within it, and I think that's what kind of draw, drew me to it. Um, what kind of things draw you to the creative arts, such as reading and writing? Because really, when you're listening to the muse, to me, it's you're listening to that God within yourself. So what's it like to to create out of nothingness something, you know, beautiful words and, and pictures? Well, I mean, I like the idea of the, the cult within or the inner divinity. And my work is very much spirit-led because I'm also, uh, you know, like I worked as a shamanic practitioner for many years and the teaching I do is very much shamanism, nor shamanism seder. And that means that, you know, there was a point where I felt my life wasn't working, wasn't working so well. If I lifted from the egoic point of view where I wanted to be in control and plan everything, and mm -hmm. I just got a point where I handed it over and I said to the spirit, well, okay, maybe you know better than I do. Like, lead me where you need me, but I'm not going to try and control the, the journey anymore and that was the sentence or the prayer the mantra that changed my life so for me in everything i do be it painting or writing or, or teaching or even parenting like all these things i do they ultimately come from a spirit-led place so what i'm trying to do in as far as one can in a human body with human concerns is wow. to anchor that spirit-led perspective in the world and to, so where possible not come from the egoic thing or i'm pushing my will onto the world but wow. more yeah kind of a die will be done except not with a christian cult but with you know the spirits like you know the world of spirit like may a larger perspective prevail wow. kind of thing i almost see it as like a, a radio you're kind of a transistor for the spirit to speak through you and you're just Speaking of communication, you're just trying to communicate through them maybe what they can't communicate. Um, a big part of communication is listening. That is one of the hardest things people have is listening. Why do you think that is? Are we just so caught up in our own thoughts and, and, and what we need to hear? Or, or how do you become a better listener when it comes to all these different languages? And part two of that question is when you think and have thoughts and create um, is it in different languages or is there a certain one you go to or, or something you like? How does that work as well? Oh, you know, these are excellent questions. Um, I think that listening is not very wired into our language we're very much conditioned to speak and get our perspective out there and you know listening like many other things such as grieving or ancestral healing work i mean there are many other things or you know aging well eldering there's lots of things that are undervalued in our culture so it's right. not very deeply ingrained and then what you get because this is like a mode we have collectively you know, people, I think, have a being listened to deficit, if that is proper English, I'm not sure it is, but there is a, I observe in people there is a deficit, people have a yearning to be listened to properly and to be witnessed yeah. on the level of soul and to not have someone talk over them the minute they catch their breath. Um, so, you know, I think it's different things. I think, you know, we could do much better collectively speaking, but that would start by like, really listening properly to our children and not talking at them, but talking to them and listening, listening very carefully back and modeling that and doing that as teachers as well. So that in our society, we start anchoring a different idea of what listening actually is. And listening so there's a, sorry, there's a very strange noise on the line. I don't know what this is. Hang on, let me take the volume down a bit. Yeah. So. 
I can hear you, but it's a bit garbled. I don't know what's going on. It's like there's another person on the line or an echo. Mm, sorry. This is very hard to hear at the moment because there is um, an extra sound. I can barely make out the words. I'm really sorry. A little bit, but it's still very rustly. This is still, it worked just fine in the beginning. I don't know what this is. I don't know. No, if I could do something, could I do something to improve this? This is good now. This is good. I don't know what you did. This is good. Don't touch anything. <laughs> okay. well, we're back. Uh, uh, if you've been joining us, we apologize. Hello, little technical difficulties. We are uh, speaking with Imelda Live, like I said, from London, England. Uh, thank you so much for being here again. And um, you were talking about being a shaman. Uh, uh, give people a brief layman's uh, definition of what a shaman is before I ask you this next question. Sure. Well, I would not call myself a shaman because the way I was taught, we leave that word for people in indigenous cultures, in tribal right. cultures, and like people who come at it the Western way, you know, it's a different route. So out of yeah. respect for them, so I wouldn't call myself that. But essentially, a shaman is the spirit worker in the community. It's the person who receives the guidance, who performs ceremonies, healing work. Um, ceremonies to honor the ancestors, uh, rites of passage work for young people. Um, so it's like a whole um, whole bundle of tasks that the shaman performs. But at the heart of it is the connection to spirit, being the voice of spirit in the community. How hard is it to keep spirituality like that going in modern times and keep people educated? Because it, and it's it. I, I know there's this term truth seeker, you know, people are seeking the truth, which, which I believe is within yourself, but I'm always drawn towards things like this. So do you think, uh, uh, like I said, in times like this, it may be harder to teach or pass on, but people seem drawn to it anyway. So do you think the spirit's going to reach out and, and, and talk to folks, whether, you know, it's modern times and because we're so connected to our social media and, and our, our TVs and our computers and well, I think that's true. But then again, you know, uh, the spirits also know about modern tools of communication. So they will find ways of communicating with us through social media, computer screens, smartphones, whatever. And I think that, yes, like on one level, it's always hard because we have to, you know, tend to the everyday and we have to make decisions about, you know, the food we ate or eat or the clothing we put on our children or whatever it may be. 
Um, but also on another level, I find that a lot of people think they can afford to ignore spirituality or say they don't believe in it or they're atheists or whatever for as long as the, the sailing is smooth. But right. the moment people hit really big obstacles or hardships or a diagnosis or, you know, a bad breakup, whatever it may be, in my experience, that often becomes an initiation that turns people to spirit because in that moment, they realize that they need to hook up to something larger and also that they need certain spiritual tools to help them navigate the experience. So if anything, when the times become harder, people are more inclined to go and see well, you know, shamans or in my tradition, a Said Mother or a Said Kuna or whatever word you want to use from whichever tradition, the spirit worker. And one of, do you, do you think one of, um, and I don't know how we differ, but one of the things, uh, uh, instead of speaking a different, one of the things I find fascinating is some of the things that run through almost every religion. Um, sort of like what you were talking about earlier, and I'll, I'll talk about things like, you know, the golden rule or something that I've come upon that's kind of uh, uh, touches base on what you're talking about earlier, too, is mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness, being in the moment. That's one of one of those things that like love or the golden rule or, or, or a few other things that seem to, uh, no matter what the religion, that thing seems to be in there somewhere. Um, and I think anxiety is two parts. One is we are stuck in that future instead of being in the now. And the other thing is how man has started to separate himself from nature and how we think like maybe we're above it or separate from it. But really, mm -hmm. we're, we're a part of it. And, and I, you know, I'm not, I know there's a lot of things going on in the world today and a lot of things cause anxiety. But I believe one of the roots of it is us pulling ourselves away from nature. Is there a way we can get back? Uh, um, to that at our root and, and figure out what our, our true nature is and, and, and get kind of uh, uh, more back to to our true spirit selves, basically. Well, you know, absolutely. And I would see, say that the two are interrelated, that, you know, like our connection to nature also tells us about our true nature. Because there's a teaching in shamanism and in other belief systems that the world within mirrors the world without. They're like one and the same at the end of the day. And if you work with that sacred mirror, then there's quite a lot of possibilities that open up. But certainly in my line of work, I mean, I run a school in the forest in Sweden. So I literally send students out in a forest where there are wolves and lynxes and wild animals and things like that. You know, it's not tame nature. It's a wild forest. There are no paths or tracks, only deer trots. So I think that's a really important part of it. But even for people who are in a city or not in a forest or whatever environment, the very simple exercises you can set them, like even just going for a walk every day, you know, listening to the birds, paying attention to omens, uh, going to your local park, um, having a conversation with a tree, and then really doing deep listening, not just talk at the tree, but go quiet and sort of see is there anything the tree is communicating back to us. Maybe not in a human voice, but in other ways. So in my experience, you know, there is like there are so many like simple exercises that anyone can do that don't even uh, depend on a belief system or a religion that you can give people. And then that connection to nature comes back up. And the moment people engage in that, their intuition sharpens because their inner nature activates as well. You know, like I said, the, you know, the mirrors, what we do on the outside is mirrored by what happens on the inside. Yeah. Yeah. I, I truly believe in that. And, it, and it, it helps with grounding too, which is something that's helped me with my anxiety uh, many years ago. And I've talked about this on the show before I was diagnosed with PTSD 
and two of the things that have helped me most is kind of um, reconnecting with nature and, 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 and being able to live more in the moment. And, and mm. that's really all we have. We ride that moment forever, right? The past literally doesn't exist. The future is not here yet. So that's all we have. Um, is there any better way uh, to raise this next generation to be more mindful and not to be so worried about m maybe what they did in the past or, or what's coming up in the future and just live in this moment? Well, I think so. But, uh, you know, with children, and I have taught many children, I've run groups for children, I essentially do the same thing with them as I do with adults, except they're much faster. They pick it up much yeah. more quickly and they're more sort of creative with it. But just to essentially say that, you know, to not sort of instill the figure of a priest between them and the world of spirit and not like instill a belief system either but to sort of you know help children quite naturally to find out what their connection connection to spirit is you know how they perceive you know spirits or ancestors or depending on belief system it could be angels and other beings again that would depend on what family they're from and what culture they're from right. and then again you can encourage them you can do deep listening and you can give them the tools to keep that connection alive also meaning that when things get difficult in the lives of those children they have that hotline like they themselves can directly receive information from spirit they do not depend on another human being to do it for them and that's like very empowering so that's perfectly possible and actually my whole the first book i ever wrote was all about that about that kind of work with children and what was the name of that in case somebody wants to look that up Natural Born Shamans is the title of the book, A Spiritual Toolkit for Life. There's two or three of those that, that really interested me. I want to try to read. And, and if um, you get a chance after this podcast, follow her on Instagram. Um, are you on Facebook? You have a website as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, so give everybody your, your website and your Instagram in case they do want to come look you up and, and find your books and paintings and things. Yes, well, my Instagram, I think, is at Imelda Onquist, if I remember correctly, but it's an unusual name. So if you type it in, you're going to find me. Um, and on Facebook as well, just under the same name. And my website address is www.shaman-painter-healer.co.uk, which is a stupid title. wish I'd never chosen it, but I chose it a long time ago, and I thought, no, I would visit the website. So there you right. go. You can only spend the future like we were talking about, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't know about the future then. I was just like trying something out. I didn't realize I was going to make a website that would like go strong, uh, you know, 15 years later. But right. whatever. That's amazing how everything <laughs> is kind of locked on online. Everything you do, like this episode, everything is uh, locked online. Um, going back to uh, the, the books and the paintings and, and the different things that you do, is there any one of those that you, you feel most led by your inner spirit that's your path or that you're most passionate about or or that draws you the most or are they all just pieces of a puzzle of, of make up who you are? I think for me they're all expressions of the same form or the same force which is you know that process of giving spirit a body and a presence in the world and I couldn't really say that you know, like say, yes, my paintings are spirit led, but so is my writing and so is my parenting and the way I am with my children. So I really couldn't say that one of those things is more so than others. To me, they're just, it all comes from one central place and that is both um, connected to my external understanding of divinity and the way I perceive the divinity within right. and uh, everything else just flows from there. 
and then the task is to keep the channel of communication open. But then also the great thing with working that way is you never have writer's block or fear of a blank page. I mean, yeah. because, you know, the channel is open, there's always something that flows. So you don't get those anxieties that one can have if you try to create from a more like ego-led kind of place. Right. Yeah, I've definitely done both. And it, it's it, if that's why it was also more difficult to me like if you tell me to write down and sit down and write down something about something i may have more difficulty than uh whatever you want to call it the muse speaks to me and i listen and i got to kind of share that with people then it comes out a lot better than when i get in the way and it's my ego and my idea and and something that i think is you know yeah exactly yeah gonna be out there um going back to the language again i was asking you your thoughts do you what language do you think in? Do you think in different languages ever? Is yeah. Different? Uh, well, I mean, I live in England most of the time. So, um, you know, I suppose most of the time I think in English. My mother tongue is Dutch, but I don't speak it at often, unless when I speak to my family. But it's not my working language. I don't teach in Dutch. I don't read in Dutch, unless, you know, I wrote a book about the Netherlands recently. I had to do a lot of research in Dutch. Right. But I suppose like most of my thinking is in English. And the next language I use is Swedish because I have a school in Sweden and I spend more time, you know, the second, the country where I spent um, the most time other than England is Sweden and I teach there. But then also I'm always like turning it around because if something, if something isn't clear in Swedish, I think, but hang on, what's the origin of this at Koto Old right. Norse? Or if I'm working with a word that's a bit tricky to understand, etymology, Koto, the origin, what does it mean in Latin? What does it mean in uh, classical Greek, you know, or whatever, or whatever. Or if said, yeah, there are other, another thing that's beautiful about languages is that not all words in languages translate very well. You often to ha you have one word, in one language and to explain that into another language you almost need a sentence or you're going to be using words that overlap but they don't have exactly the same meaning which is also why it is so difficult to tra translate poetry for instance you know that's a, a very and very difficult situation right yeah yeah so you know so i think the beauty about having more than one language is that it's kind of like a child playing with multicolored toys or duplo it's like well okay it doesn't work here try it that way or can i construct something does that hold up in another language it's just yeah. kind of like a like a fun thing or you know if it's sometimes if i'm standing at a bus stop and i'm a little bit bored i'll i might translate the things i hear people around me say into different languages just to see what i arrive at it's just like a little party came for one you know do you find across the board because there there is other there are so many other ways to communicate with you know the way we look with our eyes and, and gestures and, and body movements and things are those pretty much the same across the board regardless of the culture or the or the, the the language being spoken or do those kind of things change too like for instance maybe in Italian or some or like me it uses your hands more to speak is does, does mm -hmm. that come on culture and things as well and do you need to pick up on those small subtleties? In a different way as well well you do and it depends i would say that many sort of you know gestures in most western european languages um is the same also like sounds you make going like uh uh or uh -huh, or right. you know things like that they don't translate into all languages but the thing is if you more step outside western culture there are things that we consider very rude that is like good table manners there or the things that right. we do thoughtlessly or kind of like 
they're offering someone the wrong hand and then in that culture just the hand you use when you go to the bathroom and wipe yourself and like so you know we'll just like proffer a hand and they'll like fear back and think ooh or you know so actually no you cannot say that all of these gestures and all of these you know all of that body language translates into all world language it most definitely doesn't and if you're going to go to non-western cultures need to educate yourself you need to get the locals to tell you what you should absolutely not be doing and what will make people feel good and it may feel very strange to you there's even countries where things such as nodding are reversed like in western culture people sort of nod to say yeah i'm with you i agree but like cultures when nodding means no and then you have like cultures where it is rude for people to say no or give you negative information. So people are going to tell you what, what you want to hear, not actually what's accurate information. Mm-hmm. And you can get really, really lost unless you know how to ask the right question because they're going to send you in the wrong direction because they think they're trying to please you and not disappoint you. And of course, you end up in a big mess. So I would say that that is not at all straightforward. There is a whole art to navigating even languages you don't know, at least knowing the basics and knowing you know how not to commit a faux pas. Yeah, yeah, not to uh, offend your person you're speaking with too much. I can imagine even more on the political realm what it must be like trying to communicate a a thought or a theory or something to somebody from another country in another language when so much pressure is on the line versus, you know, when you're just asking somebody where a good restaurant is. Exactly. uh, uh, I can't even... um, I hope... I hope that diplomats receive training in this. I assume they do, but uh, I don't know that for sure. But surely they do, or else, like, you know, like things will not go well. Yeah, sometimes it doesn't seem like here in America our politicians are the best when it comes to diplomacy anymore. Um, We have a few, but they just seem like they're getting brasher, and I don't know. They're not, they don't seem as, um, like, when I was younger, they seem more polished, you know, maybe more um, eloquent, um, better expressing ideas. And, and and I know they pandered a lot because a politician is a politician, but it, it seemed different than to the kind of politics we see now. Has there been a lot changed in England from the politics the, in the politicians when you grew up to how it is now? Because there's been so much happened. Um, I think, well, that's a really big topic, but I say, yeah, in like the countries where I spend the most time, that would be England, Holland and Sweden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, I, mean, I would say, yeah, there have been changes, maybe most so in England. I know the world is watching British politics quite closely. I don't think I need to go into the details. Right. And I would say that but even in Sweden has had a hung parliament recently. The Netherlands oh. is doing quite well. They've had a prime minister who's been there for years and who keeps being re-elected, who's really honest with the people and will admit it when he makes a mistake. So I think in Holland, they're doing okay at the moment. Sweden has had some big trouble. And here in England, well, you know, let's not go there. (laughs) Do you think a man's character can hold up? Because, you know, they say absolute power corrupts absolutely. So do you think it's a case where we're just not finding people with the integrity and character we need to be the politicians and leader we need? or, Or what do you think it is? Well, I think my ideas are a bit way out. I very much believe that the kind of ruling of a country should be done by elders, like more sort of, you know, indigenous style, where you would have a council of elders who are not chosen for their political ambitions, which is an ego thing again, but who are chosen for a track record of being deeply involved with their community, you know, the earth-based way of life, and who have a track record in, in, in anchoring that, and who have like life wisdom as well as intelligence. So I know that I'm not going to get my wish, but 
I would like the people. <laughs> it's a big project, yeah. I know not in my lifetime, I think, but I would like the people in politics to be the true elders of our community and also for them to sit in council. But I'd like to go even further than the humans. I'd like to give voices also to the non-humans, the animals, the land. I know they've done that in New Zealand. There was like a river that was given not only a name, I think it already had an indigenous name, but it was given a voice in parliament, meaning that when decisions are made about that land, someone who would be like you know a shaman would like go and speak to the river and get get the opinion across from like the non-humans from the river and from the beings that live in the river so you get like a non-human voice voting on what happens to that land and that's where i would like the whole thing to go but as i said my ideas are way out no one is like listening to me on this one particularly well uh, it sounds like a lot of them the reason they may be way out is because they are logical and that just doesn't seem the way most people's brains operate in society anymore there's no um reverence for what came before them or wisdom or 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 the past um because there's lots of knowledge in in history and the real history because the problem is is we have this history in america that's taught in schools that's you know we know now most of it's ridiculous mm -hmm. uh, and i think that's why again we roll around and make a lot of the mistakes we've made is because if you don't know your true history and you don't know your history, you can't not repeat those mistakes or fall into the same traps. And it's and it's hard enough not to fall into them anyway because we're human and, and we tend to fall into patterns in our ego mm -hmm. and, and things like that. Um, well, I lost my train of thought. It just, not only did I lose my train of thought, it jumped way off the tracks. <laughs> it does that sometimes. Um, what was I just talking about? No clue, huh? Mm -hmm. This is my co-host. I'm sorry I didn't get her introduced earlier. Um, you didn't was nervous. I didn't. I didn't even introduce myself. I'm Jerry Anderson, by the way. How you doing? Thanks for watching. Conversation. <laughs> co-host and beautiful wife, Jen. You'll recognize her hand. There's her hand. Say hello. Oh, hello. <laughs> See your hand. <laughs> um, I was really nervous talking to you today. I'll I'll be honest. Um, more in an excited way because there were just so many things I want to talk to you about. My thoughts became kind of overwhelming and it was hard to kind of separate them because I, I can be really bad. That's why I like the mindfulness. It helps me calm my mind because when people ask what my thoughts are like, sometimes I just scribble and be like, kind of like that. <laughs> so, so, so it definitely uh, led to some nerves. Are, are there still things that, that make you nervous? Or are you pretty zen in most things or, or how do you deal with anxiety if you have it or um what makes me nervous i think holding really big responsibilities maybe like working with people who are dying or mm. working with extremely sick children um or teaching a really large group of people uh, and i know like their sort of you know welfare is kind of can depend on the way that i hold the group but i also know if i don't do that with discipline the whole thing will go to pieces and walking that line between being a disciplined teacher and a compassionate teacher and you know of course not everyone is going to agree where that line goes and people who haven't been a teacher are like backseat drivers you know they criticize so but I think, yeah, the really, I think the really extreme cases, you know, the fair, you know, very sick children, you know, the dying or like working on really, really dire situations, very, very difficult situations where there's a lot of suffering. Because then like my ego will speak and say, but, you know, who am I to do this well? Right. And then sometimes I have to say, but if I'm not going to do it, who is going to do it? Right. And then and sometimes it doesn't just need to be the hero. It needs to be the victim as well. 
well, the hero and the victim are like flip sides of the coin, or at least the victim and the perpetrator are flip sides of the coin. And if you want to work in a truly compassionate way, you need to like hold all of that. So, you know, but yeah, but you know, you asked me what makes me nervous, not so much public speaking, not standing up in front of a crowd and and doing my thing that holds no fear for me. but more sort of like uh, having the responsibility of holding really, really sensitive, you know, people and processes where there is a lot of a lot at stake, right. you know, li- life and death type situations. Yeah, where where there's the the most pressure on you to to perform, I imagine that would be. Um, that's made me think of all kinds of things. So we were talking about you know the the flip side, and it's it's, it's both sides, the the hero and the victim. And that's another thing that, that has always fascinated me that's the same in a lot of religions is kind of the yin and yang. Um, mm. I also think that creates the resistance is what creates a lot of physical and emotional and spiritual pain because we're trying to separate yin from yang and, and make one um, label it or judge it as bad or negative when, when really it's just like you said, two sides of um, a coin, right? It's yeah. Kind of, it's, it's, we need it. It's a part of, you can't, you, you got to learn. So how do we learn to deal with that and not trying to separate and, and, and judge with our minds uh, uh, or make it evil well, bad? I would say that takes us to the sacred art of shadow work, because when we do shadow work, uh, we very much learn that what we deplore in others and you know, what outrages us in others is to find it within ourselves. Yes. So, of course, if I'm looking at, let's say, a mass murderer, I'm not going to literally, I've never committed a murder at this time, so I'm not going to literally find a murderer within me. But if I imagine myself into situations that someone would like hold the gun to my children's heads or whatever it might be, I very quickly realize that there is within me the, the capacity to kill and there is within me a murderer. I don't know if that's murder or self-defense, but nevertheless, that, you know, it's so easy to say, oh, I would never kill, but also I've never been conscripted into the army. But I can quite easily bring up scenarios in my mind where I know that I would kill to save a life or to to save my children's lives or, you know, whatever it may be. And that goes for a lot of things, like with my students sometimes when they really, you talked about politicians a moment ago. So when my students really get into it, oh, I hate this politician, this person is evil. And sometimes what I do, I take them on a shadow work exercise where I say, okay, now we all go and we visit our whatever, inner Donald Trump or inner inner Boris Johnson or inner Vladimir Putin or whatever it may be. And then people are like, well, I don't want to do that. I don't have that in me. I said, no, like we are going to do this. I insist they do it. That's an eagle. Of course you don't want to deal with the truth. No, they don't. They they really don't. It doesn't make me a popular teacher in that moment. However, when they do it and come back and they say, hmm, working with Donald Trump put me in touch with the inner toddler or sort of, you know, visiting Vladimir Putin. Yeah, they're all areas in life. I would like to be a dictator and call all the shots. But actually, when people do that work and that doesn't make it okay what these people are doing in the world, it's not an excuse for them to carry on. But you get to that point where if you can find it within yourself, you can start working with it in a more meaningful way. And it's not so black and white. Oh, he is evil and I'm good. It's right. more, it becomes more a gray zone where you can start like learning from that and navigating. It's difficult for me to discuss politics because that's the way I feel too. So there, for you to really discuss politics, people want you to choose sides. They want you to be black or white. And there's, there's so much gray in, in between. 
And, and also what I, to differentiate, I tell people I have unconditional love, but I don't have unconditional tolerance. They're different. <laughs> exactly. You know, people try to put those things together. They think just because they yeah. must have to tolerate somebody. Um, there's a saying, I can't remember uh, what somebody said is, it's not that I don't want to see you eat, just not at my table. Yeah. Um, yeah. So do you yeah. think that would help people maybe reconcile judgments and, and, and the yin and yang thing is it, just it's just understanding that or have maybe a better understanding of that? Well, I think that certainly does help. Again, for me, it goes back to spirit and like what I sort of learned at some point when, you know, I was having some difficulties with people whose paths I had crossed. I sort of realized that I had difficulties reaching the place for unconditional love. I was not yet at a point where forgiveness was on the cards. But then I realized we have all these like great mother goddesses as we understand them in any culture. They will be different in different cultures, but there's like a way I see the mother goddess and I realized I could park these issues with her so I can hand it over to spirit and sort of ask the mother goddess that I feel a close connection to, to hold that space of uh, compassion and forgiveness and to hold those people, in this case they were human beings, like in her care until I'm able to do so, however long that may take. And then I feel it's still taken care of and I've still sort of worked within myself to get there, but I don't have to like produce something I do not feel and be insincere in that moment. So there are ways and means of working with that in my experience. Well, people, I think they need to know too that the working on yourself and just the shadow work and things like that is a continuous thing. Um, people see this, uh, that they deal of this this image in their head that's a destination when, when really it truly is the journey it's not just a cliche it's like it's when i say live in the moment what you're doing on the moment is being in the journey um yeah yeah I think, you think that might help kind of reconcile to some of the yeah the, i think the, so on the journey and not so much on the destination no but also like you know what is the destination because when we embrace the journey the destination shifts or we think we have a destination and we're going somewhere else so i think the the idea of a destination is wired into the very linear culture we are in. We're start, starting at point A and we need to go to point Z or Z in American English. But like in reality, um, all indigenous peoples teach that the nature of reality is more circular, circular and cyclical. So right. maybe it's more like moving in a spiral and revisiting issues and being given the opportunity to do things again. And there is not like a destination in the linear sense, or at least that's how my understanding has evolved over the, the last few decades. So I think it's not always helpful to think of a destination because then also you get into the sort of achievement-based way of thinking that I could achieve you know this and this and this and like what if you cannot achieve that are you going to be a less happy human being you know is it a helpful way of thinking always i don't know yeah it's, it's one of those things that again the inside thing i believe that joy is the thing that's inside of us that we can go in and touch and happiness is circumstantial on things that happen outside of us today jerry jerry the sound is now going very bad again we have that problem back still very 
Sounds still very messed up. I can't make out the words. I'm sorry. Anything now? Much better. Much okay. better. Yeah, yeah. Um, one, no, one last question, and then, then, then we'll start wrapping it up. Um, this is kind of out there, but, but it's something that fascinated me, and I wanted to talk with you about it. I'm sure you've heard of the placebo effect, correct? Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of proof that our bodies and minds are amazing things and can do things that literally, if you put your, your mind to it, do you think because we're such a consumerism and we're trying to find customers and not cures is the reason we don't study more of the placebo effect and study more how we can heal ourselves or maybe use some of the old ways? Um, because it's literally scientifically proven itself to be something that in all these situations and all these different illnesses, multiple illnesses, mm -hmm. it truly works. So why, why is our focus as scientists, as, as people, not more on what exactly the placebo is? and how to maybe grow that so that we can start doing some things in our health and not be so dependent on an outside healthcare. Well, I agree with that. As someone who's done years of shamanic healing work, you know, that work is really about activating the inner healer. In a way, you can never heal another person. You can activate their inner healer and right. you know, get them on the path to healing. So that is the first thing. But also in the world of like shamanism and spirituality, there is a very important thing, and that is an intention. And like, you right. know, in classes we teach that the moment you set an intention, something is set in motion. It may not manifest immediately, it may not manifest in exactly the way you have in mind, but setting an intention is a very powerful thing. And I sometimes think that's just my personal take, that what a placebo does, that even if people in some control groups, they even know they're having a placebo, and in right. other control groups they do not. But I think what unites both scenarios is that a strong intention has been set for healing or an improvement to occur. And right. I personally think that maybe it's the setting of the intention that drives the healing process rather than the placebo itself on any kind of chemical level. And clearly there is no chemical level because it's like a sugar pill or, or whatever. Right, right. But we, so I mean, we're basically made, made up of hormone, I mean, hormones, electrical pulses and things like that as well. So I guess um, we can teach ourselves to control those things within us the way uh, an outside chemical was in a much more healthier way the way the the body was designed for it right mm -hmm. well yeah that's 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 definitely something that's always fascinating me and I, I loved your take on that and everything else as well um and i definitely would like to get you back on the show again because there's a lot more i'd like to talk to you about uh but before we wrap it up is there anybody you want to say hello to anything coming up any uh, shows, podcasts, radio interviews, books, anything coming up you just want to tell everybody about it? Well, I would like to say hello to your audience and thank you for listening to me. And I hope you can make sense of a Dutch accent with an overlay of a British accent. And 
Yeah, I mean, I always have workshops coming up. I'm teaching a class on Thursday this week, uh, which is a free class based on the natural born shamans material, because a lot of people have asked me, we've had a pandemic and now there is a war on in Europe. Like, what are we going to do about offering children a spiritual toolkit? So I've decided yeah. to teach that class completely for free. And it's especially aimed at people who do healing work, also social workers, therapists, and people like that, to give them an insight um, as to what tools we have in shamanism that people can use in their work so i don't know if your um episode will be live by then or maybe it's live right now i don't it know is, it is live. we are live right now and it will be up on uh, not only i'll put a link up to it on my facebook but i also have a website as well chronic-conversations.com that will be added to so and and i'll list up on my facebook i'll find you on facebook so I can share your information as well. That'd be fantastic. I'll share it around all my sort of social media and usual awesome. channels as well. Yeah. Yes, so yes. like if people are interested in that or if people want to have a free opportunity to try a class with me, there are still spaces in that class. So people can just go. I have an online school called Pregnant Hack Teachings where people can find a class. You just press enroll and you get a confirmation email from my school. It's very simple. Awesome. Yeah, sounds uh, very interesting. I might have to do something at that when I find time as well. And I, I definitely would like to get some of your books to uh, get more in-depth uh, versions of some of the things we talked about. And we'll definitely get you back on the show. Um, thank you so much for joining me. And um, don't worry about your accent. I'm from the South, so I got the Southern accent. So they have to listen <laughs> to this all the time, too, and try to uh, uh, make sense of what I'm saying. But thank you so much for being on here, Imelda. We appreciate you and your conversation. The thing I tell my guests at the end, and I'll let you know, is time is the most precious gift you can give somebody. And you get mm. me and my listeners, and, and there's no way to repay you that. So thank you greatly. Well, uh, thank you for having me, Jerry. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to the wife, your wife. I yeah, saw her hands. You, but thank you for always being my support, because without her, this whole thing wouldn't exist. Um, thank oh, you to all wonderful. the women out of the world. It was just International Women's uh, uh, Day. And... You know, we all have mothers. We were all born into this world because of, of a woman. So, uh, mad respect and love to all the moms, grandmoms, and great grandmoms out there, uh, daughters, nieces, and, and so forth. And uh, thank you so much for watching Chronic Conversations. If you'll hang on just with me just for a moment um, as we leave going live, Amelda. And uh, we'll see everybody on the next one. The next one will be the 16th. We are having Mark Collin and Jason from um, the Paranormal Group uh, of P. A lot of initials, a lot of initials. Paranormal Research, P-R-G-I, will be on the show talking about their latest ghost hunt. Uh, thank you again to Amelda, and we'll talk to everybody later. Bye-bye, everybody.